in standing and pray with me. Lord, we are completely dependent upon your Holy Spirit in all that we do in this service, Lord, from every song we sing to when we meet you at your table, and certainly, Lord, at the preaching and proclamation of your word. Lord, as a human vessel, I do not have power in myself to give a word that is encouraging or truthful or transformative. It would be an empty exercise if I tried to do this in the flesh. And Lord, as the gathered body of Christ, Lord, we, we can't understand the scriptures and we can't hear the proclamation of the word unless the Spirit of God empowers it and us to receive it, Lord. So we come to you open-hearted and open-handed, and we ask for your grace to be poured out in this time. Be glorified in the preaching of the scriptures. Grant me what I need, Lord, and, and spiritual gifts to do this. Grant us uh, together as a body what we need to be able to receive this. And we will be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. And it is in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I've got a few uh, statements here that I want you to cogitate on a little bit. Kind of think about what would be the unifying theme of these statements I'm about to make. First of all, why, yes, honey, I do think you look fat in that dress. Hey, give me a fork. The doggone toaster's jammed. I wonder where the mother bear is. Don't worry, I've seen this done on TV. And my favorite, because I think I've probably said it, hey, y'all, watch this. That's right. These are all likely to be someone's last words. Well... Last words can be humorous, but I think last words are also very important. You know, when we have family visiting us this week, and, and the last things you say when family, and many of us do, I'm, I'm sure, are, as they're going out the door or as you're leaving, you want to leave them with what is most precious to you, the thing that is closest to your heart. Those last words are very, very important. In fact, there's a long tradition in Christian, in Christian history of last words on someone's deathbed as being extremely important. I remember uh, John Wesley's last words were, the best of all, God is with us. I hope I have the presence of mind and the fullness of the Spirit to say something along those lines. Last words can be extremely, extremely important. And what we have heard in the Revelation of St. John, that, that text from Revelation this morning, are literally the last words in the last book of the Bible. Uh, Revelation is assigned for the third year of our three-year reading cycle through parts of the Bible. We call Bible, we call that the lectionary. We're in year C, and so we read the book of Revelation in the season... Easter, we read selected passages from that book, and we've heard here at the, very, at the very end, really, the last word from our Lord Jesus Christ, risen and glorified to his church. Revelation was the last book, probably, written in the New Testament, either that or Second Peter, we're not quite sure, but probably Revelation around the year 95. Um, Revelation was the last book in, to be received by the church as being truly authentically inspired and a part of the canon of Scripture. So it's a last in that. And here at this point in this passage, we have the Lord Jesus Christ risen and glorified. We have his last verbal communication to his church and Holy Scripture. And so I think we do well to pay heed to this passage because perhaps there's something deeply significant in us, in it for us. 
us today as we listen to the Bible being taught this morning. And so let's just turn to that. What are the, what's ultimately important here in these last words of the New Testament? Well, first of all, the last word is invest your life in that which is genuinely significant. Invest your life in that which is genuinely significant. We are reminded that Christ is coming soon and that we must give an account for the life that we have lived in the body. Listen to what Jesus says, Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward or my recompense is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Now, whether it is at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or at the hour of our death, you and I are all going to meet Jesus Christ soon. I'm, I'm, uh, this September, I turned 55 years old. Um, I'm older than I, I remember my parents being. You know what I'm saying? Is I just kinda, I'm just getting to that age, 55 years old. Y'all, that's ancient. At least I thought it was when I was 18. You know, I never expected to get here. And and whether I, um, whether I live another 25 years, and if our family history is kind of any indication, I've probably got another 25 years in me. I don't know how many of those I'll be in my right mind, but I'll be here. But even if it is a whole other 25 years, that is nothing. It goes by in a flash. It says in the Psalms, our, our, our lives are are faster than, or in the Proverbs, actually, our lives are faster than a weaver's shuttle, like a weaver's cock going back and forth. You know, that's no time at all. I'm, I looked out of the, uh, as I was standing in the prayer room upstairs, and I was looking out through the window between the services, there went my grandchildren to the car to get in the car to be taken home. Grandchildren. This life is a vapor. It's over in no time. And so, we're reminded here that since our course on earth is so brief, so quickly run, our Lord reminds us not to let the difficulties, the distractions of this life cause us to lose our focus. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days. In other words, help us to remember how brief this life is. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Seeing our life from the end changes our perspective on what is significant. Seeing our life from the end changes our, li- our, our view on what, our, what is significant in life. We're reminded to focus our lives on what is truly important. Jesus tells us that his reward is with him. Now, why is that an important phrase? Well, it reminds us for the, of this, and I think this is something supremely important in our day and age. You and I are accountable You and I are accountable. We will be held to account for what we do in this life. The fact that we must give an account means that what we do here matters. Every moment of your life is significant. God cares how you and I invest this gift of life. I I have seen it attributed to Malcolm Forbes. I'm not sure if the late Malcolm Forbes is actually the one who coined this phrase, but most of us know it. He who dies with the most toys. See? Isn't that pathetic? (laughs) Isn't that like the worst thing you ever heard? He who dies with the most toys wins? What a wasted existence. That's a wasted life. 
And you know, it's uh, G.K. Chesterton said that it wasn't the presence of pain or difficulty in our life that makes life seem meaningless and pointless. Chesterton observed that it was actually the opposite was true, that the overabundance of pleasure and of self-enjoyment actually brings a sense of meaninglessness into people's lives. Uh, that's what Ralph Bart- Barton, who was a, a famous cartoonist in, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, he was a brilliant cartoonist. He was a brilliant illustrator of years ago. And that's what he said, basically, when he left this note pinned to his pillow at the moment of his suicide. He wrote... I have had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I have gone from wife to wife, from house to house, visited great countries of the world. But I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. Living life like that, without anything ultimate and transcendent, leads to a sense of futility and purposelessness, we're reminded to invest our life in what matters. Now, on the other end of the spectrum of that kind of self-indulgent, self-pleasing uh, uh, is something that has arisen in recent years. I would call it the cult of victimization, the cult of victimization that has taken over college campuses in North America. This cult of victimization, in contrast to what our Lord is saying, your life is significant, you're accountable for what you do in this life, this cult of victimization is an abandonment of the sense of personal accountability for my own life. The cult of victimization is predicated. In other words, it's founded upon the conviction that I'm not ultimately responsible for my actions, but I'm a part of a victimized group, and thus my behavior and my failures and maybe even my successes result from the oppressive forces that are beyond my control. We see it it's relentlessly on the news now, relentlessly in the papers. The cult of victimization actually functions, in my understanding, as far as I can tell, as a type of conspiracy theory. It's like a conspiracy theory. You know what conspiracy theories are like? By by the very fact that you're denying the conspiracy theory, you're actually confirming it for the person who believes it. See, you were taken in by the conspiracy. And that's how this cult of victimization works. So that even to call its assumptions and its presuppositions into question just verifies the victimhood in the minds of those who have adopted this way of thinking. What do I mean by that? And by the way, I know that when I prepared this sermon, this made a lot more sense than when I'm preaching it. So (laughs) you have to kind of follow along. In other words, the very fact that I am bringing it up, this cult of victimization, the very fact that I'm bringing it up is evidence of my position of power and privilege as an educated white male. Therefore, any critique offered by me only serves to reinforce the oppressor-victim myth that results in absolving the the victim, the self-declared victim, from being personally responsible for their actions and the outcomes in their lives. In other words, I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable. It's the man whoever the man is. Now, of course, there really are victims in this world. But to see what they look like in reality, you are going to have to leave behind the coddled college campuses of the United States and go to places in the southern part of this hemisphere where drug lords slaughter villagers indiscriminately 
Or go to the Middle East where Christian children are literally being crucified and used as sex slaves by ISIS. There are victims. In the face of all this, though, in the face of our abandonment of responsibility, in the face of our pursuit of things that ultimately bring futility and not and not fulfillment in life, Jesus says that he is coming soon and he will give to everyone according to what he has done. He will give to everyone according to what he has done. So significance doesn't come from social position or from our jobs or possessions or pleasure or wealth or power. It doesn't come from our victim status in fact, even, even, listen, significance, meaning, and, and uh, transcendence doesn't even come through beauty. Beauty, if beauty is an end in itself, and lo- we are designed for beauty, but if beauty is an end in itself, it doesn't really bring significance because beauty always points beyond itself to something which is ultimate. And we know that that ultimate is in God. When we live life based on, in, the relation, in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, there is significance and there is great fulfillment. Great fulfillment. Real meaning is found in a transforming relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds us that he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So when Jesus is the center of my existence, each moment of my life becomes significant. Even if my life is characterized by moments and maybe even many moments of real suffering, real loss, and great pain. So invest your life in what's eternal. And that eternal significance is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The the last word here in this passage is Jesus. Jesus uses titles. He listen to what it says here in Revelation 22, verse 13. He, he uses these titles to describe himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. These titles are all inclusive. They lay claim, those titles, I am the first and the last. That lays claims to the entirety, the totality of existence. In fact, they are the titles used by God just a few verses prior to this in chapter 21 of Revelation. That's, and this is now those same titles, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus claims those titles for himself. It's all about Jesus. That's what the last word tells us. A Christless Christianity is empty and it is frustrating. In fact, I got to tell you, folks, I think that that whole idea of a Christless Christianity is becoming more and more dated because I just think everybody's come to their senses and realized a Christless Christianity is not worth having. I'm not going to be a nominal Christian anymore. I'm going to do something else fun on Sunday morning. I'm going to go hike at the, at the park. I'm going to go, I don't know, go to brunch at, at, at the porch, which is a great idea, by the way, for Mother's Day. All right, I got that in there. Where are we going? A Christless Christianity is empty and frustrating. What's more, it is useless. It is, I know it's, for, for some reason, Christianity alone shocks people in, among all the religions in the world. It seems like for, for, the, for the secular world, for some reason, that the fact that we think this is all about Jesus is particularly shocking and confusing. 
Other religions, they're okay. You know, uh, Hinduism is all about Hinduism. Okay, well, I kind of get that. Buddhism's all about Buddhism. I kind of get that. But when Christianity is all about Jesus, whoa, wait a second now. That's extreme. That's weird. I don't know where that comes from, but it's certainly out there. It shouldn't surprise us, but evidently it surprises and offends a lot of people. A few years ago, um, the Roman Catholic Church published a doctrinal statement called Dominus Jesus, which simply is Lord Jesus. Then Cardinal, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Benedict XVI, was the chief architect of the statement. And some of us may remember when that statement was, was issued because the media freaked out and many, of, many a spokesman or spokesperson for old line denominations like the one I came out of <laughs> freaked out when they heard that the, what the document had to say. Now, by the way, I read that document when it came out because, uh, I mean, literally all the pundits, their, their, hair were, were, their hair was just engulfed in flame. It was horrible. They were all, all in a, all a Twitter about it. Now, I read it. I didn't find it offensive at all. Now, naturally, there were things I wouldn't agree with in that document, such as the statement that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. But I'm not surprised when the Catholics say that. It doesn't offend me. It would be strange if they didn't say that. Heck, I, I hear Baptists think they're the only true church. I mean, everybody might come to that. No, what really, though, blistered the media and evidently even some folks in revisionist mainline denominations was that the document said that Jesus was the only way to be saved. (gasps) Oh, no. Christians think Jesus is the only way to be saved. It just shocked people. H. Richard Niebuhr, in the middle of the last century, perfectly described the kind of Christianity that many people want as one in which a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. You know, as we look over the scope of human history and indeed as we just open our eyes and look around the world today, the real question is not why is Jesus the only way to be saved. Rather, in light of our sinfulness, of humanity's rebellion against God, of our willingness to destroy ourselves, to destroy God's good creation, to, God, to destroy other people, the question isn't why is, there, why is Jesus the only way? Good gracious folks, open our eyes. It's not, that's not the question. The question is really this. Why is there any way that God would want to save us? The fact that Jesus came and died on a cross and bore my sin and conquered the grave through his resurrection is not a sign of intolerance or exclusiveness on God's part. It is a sign of infinite grace and measurable love. That's what that is. The last word here given in this last part of the New Testament is that our choices do matter. God blessed humanity by giving us the dignity of making real decisions that have real consequences. Consequences that matter now in time and consequences that matter beyond time matter throughout eternity. The ironic thing um, is that many of the same people who do not want, want God determining their affairs in this life seem to insist that God overruled their decisions in the next life. 
don't make me follow you now, God, but you better force me to be with you after I die. Brothers and sisters, if we, are, we, if we accept Christ and are baptized, we enter into God's community. That city of God that John saw coming down out of God, out of, out of, out from God out of heaven. And I think the saddest word in all of the scriptures perhaps is right here in verse 15 of Revelation 22. The saddest word I think that perhaps is in all of scripture and it relates to that decision-making dignity that God has given us. And here is the word. The sad, sad word is this, outside. Outside. There is an outside. God doesn't want anybody to be outside, but outside. The heartbreaking thing is that God allows us to choose to live outside of the love, the joy, the glory of his presence. He will let us choose to do that. He will not drag us kicking and screaming through those gates into a city that we have chosen to be without. He will allow us the dignity of our choices. But the good news is this. It doesn't stay. That's not the last thing this passage says. There's more here. The last word to us here in Revelation is an invitation. God, think about this. This is so precious. The last word God has to say to us in Christ and all of Scripture is an invitation. An invitation to come to Christ and experiencing the, experience the refreshing, renewing water of life. Listen to what it says in Revelation 22, verses 17, and then verse 20. The Spirit and the bride, so the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is always offering that invitation. We sense that if you feel yourself being drawn to God, where does that come from? That's the Holy Spirit wooing our affections, drawing us to God. The Spirit and the bride, who is the bride? The bride, as we just sang about the bride in the church's one foundation. That's the, the name that Revelation gives symbolically to God's church, to the church. So the Holy Spirit is saying, come. And the church is saying with the Holy Spirit to those who are outside right now, come, come. There's no reason to be outside. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. And that often symbolizes, as we know from John chapter 7, the Holy Spirit, which will spring up from within us, a living fountain, a water of life. A free gift, come. And he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Throughout the Old and the New Testament, God reveals himself, and I love this about our God. I mean, it's from the beginning to the end. God reveals himself as an invitational God. It says in Isaiah, the precious passage from Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2, Come to me, all who are thirsty. Do you hear the pleading in that? God pleads with a lost and wandering people, his own people. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Well, how do you buy and eat if you have no money? It's free. What God has for you is free. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Listen to what he says. Why spend money on what is not bread? Why are you 
Why are you spending your life, investing your life on what does not satisfy? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fair. One of the beautiful things about the Lord Jesus is we see this invitational character of God revealed in Christ as well. You know, the wonderful thing about Christ and about the faith that he has engendered in us about the whole Christian enterprise is that Christianity does not impose truth, it proposes truth. It doesn't impose it, it offers it. And we see that invitational offer in Jesus' ministry at the very beginning in Mark chapter 1. It says Jesus is walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter, and he sees Andrew, and they're fishermen. And so Jesus rugby tackles Peter, puts him in a headlock, drags him away, and says, you will now follow me. No, that didn't happen. As awesome as that would have been. <laughs> That's not what happened. No, it is from beginning to end invitational. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. And then listen to what Jesus says. This is our Lord. This is why, what is, this is why there is a huge whole worldview difference between the Christian faith and how we evangelize and how perhaps another religion, which is in the headlines today, is willing to kill to use force to promulgate its doctrine. Listen to what Jesus says. There's no force here. There's invitation. Come, follow me. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. From the beginning to the end, it is invitational. And then that sweet passage out of Matthew chapter 11, we hear Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus brings that invitation again and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Gosh, that sounds a lot like Yahweh speaking to his people in uh, Isaiah 55. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Hmm. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the God we serve. It's not a God. Listen to the, the pleading here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you hear the pleading? That whosoever will shall come to Christ. There is a tenderness, a sweetness to this that I hope that is not lost on us today. Down through the ages, from the prophets of Israel to the prophesied Messiah, God has been pleading with humanity, come, come to me. Let me refresh you. Let me restore you. Let me renew you. Let me love you. Let me give you life that is truly life. Let me take away the emptiness and meaninglessness of a life that makes you afraid to turn off the noise and face the silence. Let me wash away the stains and pollution with which you have wrapped yourself like a garment. Let me give you a new start. Let me give you what you didn't think you could ever have. Let me give you a new beginning. 
Let me take away your bitterness and your pain and give you joy that the world cannot take away. Come to me. You were made for this relationship. You will find peace nowhere else. And St. Augustine was so right when he said, O Lord, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. There's actually one final invitation, one final plea in this passage, and it's a plea from the church, from the bride herself to Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is a plea to Christ that he come again soon. The hope and the longing of the church is that Jesus would return soon. The church craves, it hungers for the day when her Lord will return in glory and bring an end to the, thing, to the things that are destroying human flourishing and life now. And I long for that too. I hope you do too. I hope that at times, sometimes during the day, you just stop long enough to kind of look around and say, Oh God, I long for the day when I will wake up and I know that I will never have to hear another story of how a, chi- of how a child was abused or hurt or neglected, that I will never hear that again. I long to wake up on a day when I will not hear that someone was shot in a parking lot for no reason whatsoever. I long to wake up in a day when there will not be senseless oppression and where there will not be, there will, no one will be starving, not because there isn't enough for everybody, but because some people won't let other people have something. I long for the day. When righteousness rolls down like rivers. When righteousness rolls down like rivers. So come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Make that day happen soon. It happens in a preview every time we gather around this table. You know, we, pr- we plead for the coming of Christ. We pray for that, and we get a little glimpse of the second coming right here at this table every time we gather as God's family. We... We pray for him to show up, and he does. Uh, he keeps coming back and saying, I'm here. I'm with you. I will sustain you through this gift of the sacrament and by my spirit and through the word of God. I will keep you until we meet again in that city. So, beloved, this morning, the bride and the lamb say, Come. Come to the water. Come and be refreshed. Come and find the life that is really life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand at this time as we confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, 
he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated. In peace we pray to you, Lord God. For all people in their daily life and work. For families, friends, and neighbors, and for those who are alone. For this community, the nation, and the world. For all who work for justice, freedom, and peace. For the just and proper use of your creation. For the victims of hunger, fear, injustice, and oppression. For all who are in danger, sorrow, or any kind of trouble. For the peace and unity of the Church of God. For all who proclaim the gospel and all who seek the truth. For all bishops and other ministers. For all who serve God in His church. For the special needs and concerns of this congregation. Hear us, Lord. For your mercy is great. 